This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It really is my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. And you can go back six decades to see the impact our guest today has had on the ag industry. In fact, it's not every day that I can say I have a guest on this show who actually coined the term agribusiness. Pretty amazing. And I'm so excited to share this interview with you here today. We have on the show Dr. Ray Goldberg, and I could try to share all of his many accomplishments he's had throughout his illustrious career, but we'd be here the whole hour just on the bio part. So I'm just going to pick out some highlights. Uh, But before I do, I want to make sure I mention Dr. Goldberg's recent book, Food Citizenship. It's a fantastic look at food system advocates. And as the subtitle says, in an era of distrust, why you're going to love this book is it's set up very similar to this podcast. Dr. Goldberg took the time to interview influential thought leaders from throughout uh, the food system, including people on the agriculture side, people on the nutrition side, on the policy side, and he uh, took the highlights of those interviews and made a book out of it for you. And so it's set up to where you can skip to any food system advocate that you want and read their interview. Fantastic work here by Dr. Goldberg. So make sure you check out Food Citizenship, um, this book by Dr. Ray Goldberg. A native of North Dakota, Dr. Goldberg received his A.B. from Harvard University in 1948, his M.B.A. from the Harvard Graduate School of Business Administration in 1950, and his Ph.D. in Agricultural Economics from the University of Minnesota in 1952. Together with John H. Davis, he developed the Agribusiness Program at Harvard Business School in 1955. From 1970 to 1997, he was the Moffitt Professor of Agriculture and Business and the head of the Agribusiness Program at Harvard University. Since 1997, as Emeritus Professor, he has chaired the Agribusiness Senior Management Seminars at Harvard Business School and taught a course on food policy and agribusiness at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and also taught a junior tutorial seminar on climate and its impact on the global food system at Harvard College. He is the coordinator of the Joint Business Scientific Public Policy Consumer Policy Technology Committee on the U.S. Food System, also known as PAPSAC. That acronym is for Private and Public Scientific Academic and Consumer Food Policy Group which meets annually at Harvard University. It is a collection of thought leaders from all around the world that congregates for 24 hours to talk about important issues facing the food system. It's been going on for decades, and we're going to start our conversation right there. He's going to take us back to that first meeting of people who had a stake in the food system from around the world, one that he classifies as a bit of a disaster. I had uh, the head of Wegmans Supermarkets, uh, the best supermarket as far as I'm concerned in the United States and a very social conscious retailer who improved the education of his local community and uh, works with consumers uh, in a best possible way and was voted since its inception with Fortune Magazine as one of the 
top 10 companies in the United States to work for. So a very important gentleman. He was saying that he felt concerned about hamburger meat because it came from so many different sources. And he thought that irradiating it would kill all the E. coli. When he mentioned that, why the, the lady from Consumer Activist School, Science and the Public Interest said, you're just covering up your mistakes. And then he said, you call me a liar? And then, you know, that was the beginning of PAPSAC. I thought it would never work. But today, all those men and women that met that day from the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors from all over the world talk to each other every day, they exchange ideas every day, and they come back to Harvard every November and meet for a 24-hour meeting and then fly back to Africa and Europe and uh, Latin America and uh, China and uh, think nothing of coming back for a 24-hour meeting to try to work together again. And what is, the, what is the aim of the group? What's the mission of the group? The uh, mission of the group is to find common information and statistical information and analysis that will lead to improvement in the health, nutrition, economic development, and the environment of the global food system. And to do that, by constantly looking at different perspectives, but equally important, how do we work together in a cooperative way uh, and make each of our institutions a win-win relationship rather than a combative transaction? Dr. Goldberg, how did you how did you evolve the group from that first meeting that sounds like it was a bit of a competitive <laughs> transaction? How did you evolve that into such a collaborative, thriving group of where people look forward to the dialogue every year? Well, several of the people in that room were very unique leaders and looked at their business as creating shared value. They felt that unless both parts of the value-added food chain from inputs all the way to the ultimate kitchen table were better off because they worked together and improved each of the operations, improved their knowledge about relating food to health, improved their knowledge about how to produce food in a more environmentally sound way. Once they recognized that that's what the business they're in they decided that it was important to constantly renew the relationships and the information once a year, and that's what we've been able to do. And the reason they were anxious to do it is that there was no neutral territory left. People distrusted the private sector, people distrusted government, and people just felt that uh, nobody was really willing to work together. And I, having grown up in the food system, I knew differently and I felt that I would look at an academic institution as neutral territory to give these people an opportunity to finally figure out how to work together and how to produce uh, material and information that enabled other 
parts of the food system to do so as well. How big is that group now, or do you know how many people have gone through? Well, I try to limit the group to no more than 80 people at each meeting, because if you make it any bigger than that, you don't have uh, the kind of environment where dialogue takes place, and the exchange of ideas is so important. I would say that uh, we have far more than that interested in the field, but once a year I send out an invitation and many of the people have been coming back for the last 26 years, which will take place this November. And I, I imagine that your book, Food Citizenship, which is a collection of fantastic interviews with thought leaders from throughout the food system, many of those, if not all of those thought leaders are a part of this group. Uh, how, how did you choose who to feature in the book? I chose the people uh, to be featured in the book on several criteria. First of all, I wanted people who covered uh, the whole value-added chain from input supplies to retail distribution. And I wanted people who themselves were passionate about trying to change the food system in a win-win way. That has taken place. It's been a real revolution to change from a conflict to how much you can charge for something or how cheap you can buy something to one is trying to put people who can say, well, how do we work together to make it better for everybody, the consumer in the environment and each other? And I have people who I wrote case studies about who did just that. So I knew these people, and I also felt that the public doesn't have the chance that I have as an academic sitting in Harvard to invite these men and women to not only write cases with me, but actually after the students analyze the case, I have them visit the discussion, and then they put in their perspective. So the students not only understand the problems, but they understand the men and women who are the change makers. As you're talking to, to students who are interested in the food system but don't come from the food system, kind of like you said, you grew up in it, what, what have you noticed are the big, the big light bulbs going on for them? You know, when do they, what sort of surprises them to learn about the food system? Well, there are two things. First of all, so much of our education is based on looking at the functional operations like marketing, finance, production, distribution, etc., rather than looking at it as a system. Agribusiness and the concept of it was to look at the food system as an integrated, interactive system. And if you do that, then you recognize that each part of that system interacts in a way that not only satisfies their particular operation, but improves their knowledge of how that operation helps everybody else in the system. And I came to that understanding um, really growing up in agriculture, was also on the trading floor in Minneapolis for a while and seeing how people bought and sold things. I, I realized that these men and women really knew that if they were going to be successful, 
they had to satisfy all of the people in that system, not just themselves. And not only that, they improved the value added so that they had more to share. So they were fighting, not fighting on something that was constantly receding, but fighting to improve themselves on something that was expanding at the same time. And frankly, I'm so pleased at what's happening. All, all of the uh, institutions that tried to be defensive and uh, fight against any change or government regulations now realize that it's a quasi-public utility because people are impacted on what they pay for food and, and people uh, are in in impacted in how they are paid to make that food and how do you how do you put the two together yeah and i'd like to talk more about that you've been credited with coining the term agribusiness so maybe that's a good place to start and then i want to talk more about sort of the relationship between capitalism in agriculture and the food system and the public good but first let's start with agribusiness How, how did that come about coining the term agribusiness and when was this Well, it came about when Dean David of Harvard Business School, who uh, before he became dean, uh, had worked in the food system, felt that our students really didn't understand uh, the uniqueness of it, and he thought it would be a good idea to have them understand the food and agriculture. So he picked John Davis, who was then Assistant Secretary of Agriculture under Eisenhower, to head it up, and then uh, John was not familiar with the business school, and uh, he read a book that I wrote on my doctoral thesis, The Soybean Industry in Minnesota, and he saw how I approached the problem, and he thought the two of us together could try to figure out how to look at agriculture in a systemic way rather than just in farm or production, or marketing, or retailing, or functions. And we uh, sat and talked about how do, how do we name it, and we felt that everybody had to make a living in that, so why don't we call it agribusiness? From that, you know, obviously agriculture, you know, the farmer has to make a living. Everybody along the value chain has to make a living. Can we really create shared value in a food system under sort of a capitalistic umbrella? Well, I I think so. Let me just give you a simple example. Uh, Harris Teeter is a supermarket that uh, wanted to differentiate its supermarket by having high-quality meat. And uh, the consumer would go in and look at one steak next to another steak, but he never knew whether one was more tender or not tender than the other. So Harris Teeter said, well, how how do I find a way to produce something like this so that I can differentiate my supermarket chain? And he went to James Herring, who was in the feedlot basis, which is sort of like a hotel for fattening up cows. And he said, can you help me? And uh, James Herring said, I'll see what the uh, small-scale farmer who produces the cows and calves will be willing to do by working with us to get the quality we want and we give them the right feed. And then if we go to the processor, which was Cargill, and see if they will be willing to process it. And then 
having the whole rink put together for and serve Harris Teeter, maybe we can come up and guarantee a tender piece of meat. Everybody fought up and down that system, the cow-calf operators, all 800,000 of them said, well, my daddy did it this way, and I don't want to change, etc." My research assistant said, I can't write this case. They're fighting with each other. I said, the whole purpose of the case is to get them together. So we wrote this case, and lo and behold, what happened was that by concentrating on her quality right at birth, all the way up to the final cut of a steak in the retail counter, they could guarantee tenderness. So much so that the Department of Agriculture gave them an official tenderness label. Label for a person listening to this, you know, you can talk about looking at a system and so forth. But more importantly, it isn't a one-shot deal. That's a constantly improvement of that system and getting all of these different people. They share each other's balance sheets. They share each other's operating statements. There's no, nothing is hidden. Absolutely. Well, it, it seems like so much of your career has been about bringing people together, you know, bringing them to the table. And, and that's a, it's a really rare and valuable ability. I, I read that your undergraduate thesis was on a farmer revolt in North Dakota. So is there anything, you know, did that kind of lay the groundwork early for the importance of bringing people together? Or maybe do you want to take us back and talk to us about that early experience? It certainly did. North Dakota is primarily a Republican state and the primary election becomes almost more important than the general election, at least historically. And back in uh, the uh, 1920s, we had a serious problem uh, take place in rust overcoming the wheat, which made the wheat kernel shrivel. And the farmer would take that in to sell to the grain elevator. And the grain elevator says, well, this is terrible stuff. We'll have to discount it. And it was terrible. But... The people at North Dakota State said, you know, actually, that shriveled wheat is actually almost better because what's left is all protein, no carbohydrates, and you ought to be paying them a premium. So they had a farmer who created a farmer labor party and nonpartisan league and went out and got the farmers together to say, we've got to fight the banks, the railroads, the grain elevators. They're all taking advantage of us. Let's try to capture the Republican primary. So when the primary came, instead of the conservative Republicans winning it, it was almost a socialistic group of farmers taking over. And what they did, was they created a state-owned bank because they wanted to have a chance to prove that the bank was honest and competitive to the rest of the banking system, a state-owned elevator, a state-owned flour mill, and they created a farmer labor party in North Dakota and Minnesota. And um, we today are the only state that still has a state-owned elevator, a state-owned bank, uh, and the state-owned flour mill, and the conservative Republicans, when they wanted to get back in power, 
said, we're not going to change a thing. We can just manage it better. So that's how they did it. And, and that is the, the case study you used for your undergraduate thesis? I did. Uh, your book, the, the subtitle of your book is Food System Advocates in an Era of Distrust. What makes you think we're in an era of distrust? And have you noticed trust in the food system deteriorating over the span of your career? Well, people distrusted the food system because they felt that they weren't having a food system that cared about them enough in terms of nutrition or in terms of managing the environment. And they felt that people weren't trying to listen to the needs of the ultimate consumer in a way that made that consumer healthier and made the environment better. And they were right. And um, when PAPSAT came along, I made sure that I had the toughest consumer advocates in the room saying what was wrong with the system. And then I tried to put in the room men and women who recognized it was wrong and were trying to change it. And I tried to have the FDA and the EPA and the USDA in the room so that they could uh, look at these problems and say how they would look at it. Then I had the World Bank in the room so that it wasn't just a domestic look, but a worldwide look. And then I made sure I had ethical change makers at each level in the food system be represented in that room by agreeing that they had to change the perception of what the food system was, but also to change the food system to become more consumer-oriented, more environmentally oriented, more waste management oriented. And I think that through this small little group percolating throughout the world, we have helped people help themselves to change. And in the room, we had farmers, uh, we had farm cooperatives. Uh, we, we tried to make sure that everybody in that room wanted to find a way of bringing everybody together rather than, it's our, you know, the food system is a quasi-public utility because it's the most important industry in the world and it affects the environment the most and it affects our health the most. So if we want to, if we want to improve health, and what's happened is I have the medical school, the school of public health, the government school, the business school, all in the same room because it's a multidiscipline problem. It isn't just one discipline. Right. And how do you put all these disciplines together to attack the problem and also work together. And the schools never used to work together. I had to get four deans to approve it, the president and the provost. And fortunately, they all agreed to do that. And on November 24th and 25th of this year, we'll have our 26th meeting. And uh, the book, Food Citizenship, was my way of trying to tell both my fellow academic people and the pu public that this has been a revolution. And even though we still have a lot of problems, 
these people recognize that they are only going to succeed if they are consumer-oriented, if they are nutrition-oriented, if they are environmentally-oriented, and if they work together to get the job done. And example after example takes place from each of these women and men's perspective to show how it can be done. 60% of the food consumption in our country comes through food stamps. Would you believe it? No, I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. So the lunch program at the school, not the food stamps, but the lunch program at the school represents 60% of the consumption of the United States food. And, if, and that's why it becomes so important in these schools, because it's had the ability to affect how people look at nutrition even more so. Before the book's Food Citizenship, had there been any published you know, documentation of these PAPSAC meetings? No, and that's the other thing. I wanted the meeting to be off the record. I don't want them taking notes. I don't want them trying to use the meeting to somehow in some way feel that they are doing something unique. I wanted to have it let them speak freely about what they do, what they worry about, and I have no publicity, uh, no recordings, nothing in that room. And for, for somebody, you know, who, who's going to pick up the book, it, obviously we want them to read all the conversations from end to end, but it really is a book that you could dive into any conversation that was most relevant to you at the time and kind of pick and choose. Is there anyone in particular that stands out to you that you wish more people would read specific interview in, in the book? Well, there are a few, and before I forget, on the very back cover of the book, there's an icon that tells you that if you push that button of that icon, you can actually see and hear each of those interviews on your computer. Hmm. And the reason I did that is that I had to abridge these interviews to get them all in a book, but also... I wanted people to see the passion and the caring of each of these women and men, and I wanted them to be able to understand them, not just by the written word, but how they expressed themselves and how passionate they were about the changes that they wanted to make and were making. This book has many uses. People, my colleagues in the academic world, uh, use it to teach the subject, but the rest of the world have finally discovered that foods more important than popping pills have discovered that our environment is adversely affected by land and water management, but the land and water management is done by farmers. So how do we, how do we make sure that that part of it is being done in an appropriate way? And also, how do we find a way to make the systems improve. This isn't a one-shot book. It's, a, it's a, an attempt to show that this is a continuous process and the working together is also a continuous process for constant improvement, not for one specific improvement, but for a continuing improvement day by day by day. I'm sorry to be so passionate about this. Oh, I love it. No, this is fantastic. I really appreciate Dr. Goldberg. I, 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 one thing I always wrestle with is, 
you know, I believe obviously the food system is there to to serve the consumer, but as the consumer understands that food system less and less and less, some of their opinions about it may be based on misinformation. So how do we make sure that a consumer-driven food system is done so in a way that really does benefit everyone involved and not just try to force solutions on a farmer based on misinformation? I think what's happened is that our school system is recognizing that and they're now teaching food and health in many of the uh, public schools at, e- at a very young age. And I, I have seen, well, I now have two great-grandchildren, and I've seen each generation and how they feed their children, even in my own personal family, change the fruits and vegetables that these people use, these youngsters less than one-year-old's babies is, is a whole different world than when I grew up. And I think that the message is getting, getting there. I, I really would hope this book would be read, frankly, by every consumer. But, and all the funds, frankly, uh, should go to Harvard and do, do go to Harvard. So I'm not trying to uh, make money on a book. I'm trying to help people understand that the most important thing for their future is what they eat and how they eat and how we produce it. I think the millennial group really understands changes. And when I have these meetings at PAPSAC, I get two or three of these young men and women to talk about what their generation wants from the food system and why. And when you hear them articulate what they want from it, the uh, older generation recognize that they have had to change and are changing. I don't know if you look at the headlines, but so many of these companies left the traditional spokesperson for them because they were trying to protect a system that was not as responsive to the needs of society and trying to protect the past rather than trying to improve the future for them and for the food system. Can you talk a little bit about the agribusiness seminar that you do every year? Are you still involved in that? And, and how did that come about? And what are the, what's the purpose of that? Well, what happened was that once we created an MBA course uh, in agribusiness, they realized that that section of the economy has more assets and more people and more resources employed than any in the rest of the world. And here we are a business school and not creating a senior management program. And so many of the programs that senior managers went to were horizontal programs. They would go to a marketing program. They would go to a production program. They would go to a retailing program. We never had a management program for managing the individual component parts in a system. So for the first time, when I started teaching this program back in uh, 1961, no, it was even earlier than that. But anyway, it's it's 60 years coming up in January. When I first started teaching that, 
that was the first time we had everybody in the food system in the room teaching management in a systemic way rather than a way of trying to put competitors in the room to talk about how important their section was for the rest of the economy. So it was a, a abrupt changeover. And I have to credit people who helped me understand that. Dr. Vasily Leontief, a professor at Harvard, created an input-output system to show that everybody's input was somebody else's output, etc., and how they all fit together. And Jay Forrester at MIT was looking at systems analysis. And when I was writing the book with John Davis on the concept of agribusiness, I visited with these men, and I realized their research were critical to what I was trying to do with John Davis. And I was grateful to get their cooperation and help. And they were delighted to see me apply their work to such a big sector of our global economic environment. And, and today, how many people go to that seminar? 200 people every year. We break it down to two sections of 100 men and women every year. Many of them come back every year because it's like the food system is changing so fast that you have to come back every year. Yeah. It's the fastest changing part of our global economy. We've had various revolutions, mechanical revolutions, genetic revolutions. Yeah, absolutely. Now, o over your, your accomplished career of several decades, what have been the big overarching questions that you've been asking yourself about agribusiness in the food system? Well, the overarching questions is how do we take the constant new scientific discuss discoveries and apply them to the food system in a way that is safeguarded by any mistakes we make in applying these new technologies. I think that is certainly a very key, important component of what we're looking at. The second major thing that we have to constantly look at is that the food system impacts the environment for good or evil more than any other system. So how do we make the food system more environmentally sound so that we can have the kinds of resources that we need for the future. And the third thing is that having looked at genes and cells, etc., we also realize that bacteria plays an enormous part in our whole food system and in our own lives. People have discovered that I had one case on a company that was trying to improve the productivity of a soybean seed. And he noticed there was a lot of bacteria surrounding the seed. And he took the bacteria away, and the seed wouldn't germinate. So they put the bacteria back, and he said, well, what if we add more bacteria? Next thing he knew, that by adding more bacteria, you actually improve the productivity of that seed. And what we're learning is that 
we are only in the infancy of understanding our ability to produce the kinds of foods that will enable our uh, mental and physical capabilities to continue as we age. And uh, at 93, I'm fully aware of that problem. So I, I realize over and over again that unless we get the food system done correctly and continue to find ways of working together more effectively, we, we won't have the kind of productivity or the kind of lifestyle that we want for future generations. It's the most important segment of our world economy, and it, in fact, impacts us every single day. And most of our poverty and malnutrition is in the agricultural area. A small-scale farmer doesn't get to climb the economic ladder without government help. We've got to find a better way of, of doing that. And one of the examples is Jane Irrigation in the book showing how irrigation can help the small-scale farmer. And the other examples in the book are labor leaders like Baltimore Valesquist. The Robinson-Patman Act exempted farm labor from the National Labor Relations Act. But my colleague John Dunlop and I wrote a case study on the uh, strike of the tomato and uh, cucumber growers. And what John did, he suggested that you have to have a resolution device to enable people to work together. So he created that device, which became the Dunlop Commission at the Harvard Law School, so that migrant farm workers and other farm workers can now work with the people who buy their products and have a resolution section catering them to manage disputes rather than letting people fight it out. So, you know, to me, that's a perfect example of, of how one can do it. And Baltimore is not just stopping at the water's edge. He's trying to do that globally so that youngsters don't end up getting in the fields at a young age and not getting educated, so that women become more part of the food system rather than not be part of the food system. There's so many things we can and will do. I'm just grateful that people have finally seen uh, that we can work together and and do something. And even even in the, the kind of Congress that we have, we've got two Republican senators and two Democratic senators working together to try to get institutions into food deserts that can serve the people there where there is no food available for them. I think food not only improves our environment, our health, our economic development, it improves on how we can live together and work together. We live in such a divisive world right now with men and women trying to attack each other and blame each other for each problem. The food system is doing just the opposite. And I, I hope and pray that people will take a look at 
food citizenship and know that people can work together and actually make it a win-win world. I know I'm a North Dakota optimist, but uh, when you grow up with weather at 80 below zero in the winter and 115 above, you've got to be an optimist. <laughs> well, you have such a knack for being able to identify problems without pointing the finger and bringing people together rather than drawing a line and putting them on opposite sides of things. I wonder, as you look back on your career, what are you most proud of as far as outcomes as a result of your work? I guess there are two things that I'm most proud of. My course was one of the few courses that enabled people to look at a whole system so that if they were studying marketing or production or finance or something else, they could look at a problem systemically, which to me is is so critical. I marvel at what some of my students have been able to do and I'm so proud of what they've been able to accomplish. My first doctoral student created a farmer's cooperative in India and was the assistant to Dr. Curian, and that dairy became Amal Dairy, and he was the first recipient of the World Food Prize. I just think that I'm most proud of helping young men and women help themselves. That's what education is about. You're not trying to tell them what to believe or think. You're trying to help them become better at attacking the problems that they face, both domestically and globally. And I think that as a teacher, I guess that's my greatest reward is seeing several generations become better human beings and better citizens through how they look at the world and how they see the future. And I guess the second thing I'm most grateful for was to have a university who was willing to let me put different parts of the university together to work together to work on these problems on a multidiscipline basis. And as I see Harvard and other universities changing. I see more more cross-registering by students. I see more collaboration by uh, academics. And I see more collaborations in the private, public, and not-for-profit sector. We're living through a nightmare right now where we haven't got the leadership that we need in the public sector to do the same thing, but, but we've got to get there. I think if they look at the food system as an example, they can see that they can become win-win people as well. So that's what I pray and hope for, and uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk about it, and I'm grateful to you for giving me that opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Goldberg. I, this has been a very special interview for me, and you're an inspiration to the reason I do this podcast, which is try to bring more voices to the table about the future of agriculture. I can't thank you enough for the time you've shared with, with us and, and encourage everybody listening 
to go pick up a copy of Food Citizenship because you're going to get a lot of these insights that Dr. Goldberg's been talking about in that book. And it's formatted similar to how a podcast interview is formatted. Although Dr. Goldberg is in the is on the other side of the mic. He's asking the questions uh, of these individuals. But thank you, sir, so much for, for the time. Well, it's been my privilege and pleasure, and and I'm grateful for you giving me the time to try to reach the people who uh, are the change makers, and also giving me the chance to thank the people who helped create PAPSAC and who are our current and future change makers of our food system. And thank you for having this kind of podcast to, to let the public know more about it, because I feel it's hidden from them. Well, that was really a special interview for me. I thoroughly enjoyed the time I was able to spend with Dr. Goldberg. He's an inspiration for this show. I really want this show to be about bringing perspectives to the table, various perspectives to look at the future of agriculture uh, in a productive and positive way. He has a knack and an uncanny ability to bring people together and rather than point fingers at each other to really try to work together and collaborate for solutions for a future of a better food system. I hope his sincerity and humility and just genuine authenticity came through in that interview because it sure came through uh, when I was talking to him. Uh, really love that. I hope you did too. Hey, for those of you in the U.S. listening when this comes out, happy Thanksgiving. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday and I'm thankful for you. Thanks for listening to this show every week and we'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.